You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. And this morning we're looking together at chapter 3. You're going to find this on page 775 of the Pew Bible. And this morning we're going to be looking at the first two verses of chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. Verses 1 and 2. Hear the word of God. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Well, as you know, Jonah spent three days and three nights at the bottom of the sea in the belly of a great fish. It was God's way of reorienting the thinking of this Jewish prophet. And it shows us that sometimes he must use severe measures to bring us to our senses. Now Jonah finds himself back on land, seeing things, I believe, from a new perspective. And one might say his worldview had changed. Life had taken on a new hue. He was now ready and willing to hear and heed the word of the Lord, at least at this point. And the passage under consideration is not long, it's only two verses, but I think it is significant. It shows, among other things, the Almighty's unwavering purpose. Nothing can thwart his plan, no one can frustrate the Lord's design. If he wants Jonah to preach the word in Nineveh, Jonah's going to preach the word in Nineveh. And the way of getting there might be rough, but I believe it produces the result. So first, I think we must collectively consider Jonah's commission to preach. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. And isn't that a curious phrase? Not the word was given. Not the word was spoken. No, the way it's described here, the word came to Jonah. And to be honest, it's a very common phrase used throughout the Old Testament. The first time it appears is in the ratification of the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 15, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. The phrase occurs actually more than a hundred times in the Old Testament with Samuel, Nathan, David, Solomon, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Zechariah. And as with most most common phrases, this is so easily passed over without any kind of consideration. We read them so often, at least I do, that we become numb to their real significance. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. I think it has a far greater meaning than we typically think. 
Hugh Martin says this Hebrew idiom indicates much more than an audible sound. It signifies not just the hearing of the word, but the presence of a person. In other words, it's not just the revelation, but it's more importantly the revealer. We know that Jesus Christ is described in the New Testament as the Word of God. And it's probable that in the Old Testament, the Word of the Lord came has to do with the pre-incarnate Christ. He arrived in person, I believe, to Jonah as he revealed God's Word to the prophet. I think the phrase is rather strange if it refers simply to an audible sound. On the other hand, to my mind, it makes perfect sense if it has to do with a living person, even if he is pre-incarnate. God's word appeared. The Son of God drew near. The pre-incarnate Christ came. And I think it shows us the vital interest and the tender compassion of our Lord and Savior, even with this rebellious prophet. It demonstrates that he's willing to come personally to reveal God's sovereign will. And does it not also remind us that Jesus occupies the office of a great prophet? It is through the eternal word of God that the revelation of God comes to us, as we heard this morning in Sunday school. He is the great prophet of the church. He is the living and abiding word of God, in whom are hidden all the treasures and wisdom and knowledge. And what a clear reminder it is that in Jesus we see the radiance of God's glory, isn't it? In him we're able to behold the exact imprint of the Father's nature. Christ is the supreme and the ultimate demonstration and revelation of the Almighty Creator. So that when we meet Jesus in Scripture and in preaching, insofar as it accords with Scripture, We meet God's living word, as we heard this morning. And insofar as preaching is biblical, we can say that the word of the Lord came to us. And of course, then the great question is, how are we going to respond to this word? The only reasonable and profitable way to respond, I believe, is to receive and to rest upon this word. Like good soil in which the seed is sown, we believe and we bring forth fruit 30 and 60 and 100 fold. But another thing to consider about this commission is what God told him to do. Notice it says in verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. And of course, this is the second time that God described the Assyrian capital as that great city. And Jonah's initial commission was contained the very same description And it seems that God is portraying Nineveh this way to highlight the difficulty of the mission. It was a great city. Its population likely exceeded well over 600,000 people. And the extent of it was vast. Its breadth was three-day journey, 60 miles wide. We sometimes talk about the greater Cleveland area, don't we? It's a large region. Well, the greater Nineveh region was comprised of four large metropolitan areas. It's a vast area. And this city was thoroughly evil, as we've seen. 
It was wicked, notoriously evil. They were idolatrous, sensual, brutal, and extremely depraved. The city was the epitome of sinful pride and selfish ambition. In calling it that great city, God wanted Jonah to count the cost of the mission. Consider the dangers, Jonah. Consider the opposition and the potential hostility. Jonah, you must carry out this important mission with your eyes wide open. And it was this way in the first commission, and it's the same way in the second. And this work is going to require more than human strength and wisdom. Jonah, you're going to need to rely upon my wisdom and strength as your Lord. And perhaps this is why the pre-incarnate Christ, I believe, came to him in person. This is how God often prepares his people, isn't it? He shows us the magnitude of the task. It looks daunting. It's very intimidating. It might even be dangerous. Sean mentioned some native pastors that he ministers to who face extremely difficult circumstances in their ministries. They're tempted to quit and thank God for him because he goes and encourages them. By various means, God shows us the difficulties so that we'll rely upon his strength. He wants us to depend upon him. Life is filled with griefs. It's filled with burdens and hardships, isn't it? There's mountains to climb and valleys to cross. There's storms to weather and trials to endure. You know it as well as I do. And the Christian perseveres, not because he or she is strong, but because he or she is supported by God's presence and strength. Ever wonder why in the ministry of Jesus he set forth the hardships of discipleship? (laughs) Mark chapter 8. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come to me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. As if to say, if any of you want to be my disciple, come and die with me. Okay, Lord, don't you know that that way of gathering disciples is turning them off? But he was preparing his followers for the reality and the rigor of discipleship. What is assumed is the fact that by his spirit, he will help us to do that very thing. We count the cost of the rigors and he promises to give us his Holy Spirit. We trust him. We rely upon him. We walk humbly with him. And he doesn't reveal everything about our journey to us right up front, thankfully. The weight of such knowledge would probably be too much for us. For example, in the journey of life. He doesn't tell us the day and hour of our death. And I'm thankful for that. If I knew the anticipation of the king of terrors would probably crush me. But he does reveal enough to compel his children to depend upon him. Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And I'm glad he said that because salvation is a very difficult thing both in its cost and in its execution. The cost, nothing less than the precious blood of his own son. The execution, 
It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. You know something, in the early church, wealthy people were viewed as especially blessed and favored by God. Look at that person. God has richly blessed them. So these words of Jesus were truly striking to those first century ears. That's why it says the disciples were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? If that person who's blessed by God materially can't be saved, who can be saved? They're amazed to hear how hard it would be for rich people to go to heaven. Salvation is difficult. It required the cross, and the way is not easy. The gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. But the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. But it's worth every hardship, isn't it? It's worth every trial. It's worth every difficulty that we meet. Because Paul says, and I'm so thankful that he reminded us of this, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. The glory. One more thing to mention in this commission is the message that Jonah must preach. God says, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And of course, the message clearly had to do with their wickedness and need for repentance. And we see that Jonah must preach God's message, not his own. He was an ambassador whose duty was to convey the will of his sovereign. And as we heard this morning, an ambassador does not share his own ideas and does not make his own suggestions. Such a person is not to offer his own opinions or to reveal his own desires. An ambassador must speak the word of his sovereign and nothing else. His position as an ambassador is endowed with no discretionary powers whatsoever. Jonah was being sent as an ambassador to announce the will of sovereign God. And as we've noted, he did not want the Ninevites to be saved, the Ninevites to be saved. They were the sworn enemies of Israel, a violent people abhorrent to him, and had he been able to express his own idea, he would have announced judgment. You're going to be wiped out and sent to hell. That would have been his message. But God wanted to warn the Ninevites and to lead them to repentance. That's what he told the ambassador to proclaim. And there is no shame in the duty of an ambassador because Jesus himself did it. John 14, 24, the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Isn't that striking? The Son of God, omniscient with the Father, served as God's ambassador. He came and made known the Father's will, and he spoke the Father's words, and he proclaimed the gospel message assigned to him by the Father, and he felt no shame in being confined within the boundaries of God's word. I think it's a lofty calling, the calling of Everyone who fills the pulpit. Ministers like this one 
have no discretionary power to preach what they want. We're called to preach sound doctrine, God's truth in season and out of season to keep the line, as we heard in Sunday school. And sadly, there are some who preach a message of their own making. They don't make known the Lord's will. They focus on their own will. And as a result, the church suffers as the pulpit fails and refuses to fulfill its commission. A minister who does that betrays his sovereign and dishonors Christ. That's why I believe Sean's work is so important. Training pastors to be faithful ambassadors. The man who proclaims nothing but God's word fulfills the commission. And insofar as he does that, listeners are bound to hear and to heed the message, right? As hearers, what we do is we examine what the pulpit says from the scriptures. We receive the word of God as the word of God. We hide it in our hearts and we bring forth the fruit of it in our lives. And there's a great responsibility on the shoulders of both preacher and hearers because as Pastor Pilon read this morning, the one who hears you hears me, said Jesus. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. That's the commission. So having examined the commission, let's consider the one commissioned. It says the word that came, the commission that was given, was received by Jonah. He was the son of Amittai, and as you know, he was the prodigal prophet. The first chapter outlined for us his rebellion against the Lord. He'd spurned God's command. He abandoned his commission. The God's ambassador had gone astray, and this man was worthy of death. And death would have been his punishment had it not been for the mercy of God. I'm amazed, and I would imagine you are too, that God spared this man from what he deserved. He sent a great fish. The sailors thought he died, but the fish is what actually kept him alive. And so what appeared to be a calamity was overruled for his salvation. And so often in the Christian life, Things are not what they seem, are they? God uses bad for good. Naomi called herself Mara because of the tragic events that left her impoverished. Little did she know that they would lead to her redemption by a kinsman redeemer. The disciples thought that all was lost as they pondered the death of Jesus. But that greatest of all crimes... And that was the worst of all crimes right there. It was overruled for the greatest of all good. And so we see that God works all things together for good, and we need not be anxious. If he sends to us difficulty and hardship, it's because we need it. We'll benefit from it. My son, my daughter, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. I think Jonah's experience, though it's unique in its details, was the same in principle as ours. Like us, he'd been disciplined by the Lord for his rebellion. He'd been 
spared the penalty, his rebellion had been pardoned, and not only so, but being restored and recommissioned to preach. Isn't that incredible? God extended mercy to him and bestowed grace upon the undeserving. And isn't that just like the Lord? He knew that to begin with. A God rich in mercy and abundant in grace, saving even Ninevites. Had Jonah been allowed to return to private life, that would have been gracious. But to be put right back in the saddle as a prophet was grace upon grace. The very office and mission that he had disdained was now the one that he filled. The Bible says a lot about God's mercy and grace, doesn't it? You've experienced it. And I have too. Had he not been such a God, you and I would have been in hell a long time ago. But he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So here we have east and west, the opposite points of the universe. And they never come together, east and west. And neither will apparently the forgiven Christian and his sins, they'll never meet again. A penitent believer oftentimes sets his sins before him in front. But God casts them behind. You know what sin deserves. I know what sins deserve. And yet he hasn't inflicted that judgment upon us. That was endured to its full extent by Jesus Christ as he hung on that Roman cross. And for that reason, God's mercy and grace were extended to the prophet Jonah. And we saw how grateful he was, at least in chapter 2, how prayerful he became. And yet, as we'll see in chapter 4, sanctification is slow and old sins die hard, don't they? I have besetting sins. You have besetting sins. It takes time for bad habits and sinful desires to be rooted out. And yet the Lord was shaping that living stone to fit into his glorious temple, I'm convinced. And that's what God does with each one of us. We're all living stones. We must be hewn and polished by the chisel of affliction and the brush of grief. That's what he uses. And this is how you and I are made fit for the heavenly building, the glorious temple. And all of this then leads to a close consideration of the great commissioner. We saw the commission, we saw the commissioned, and now the commissioner. We learn from this that God is far more kind and gracious and loving than you and I can imagine. His steadfast love is as high as the heavens are above the earth. Now, you can go out tonight and you can look in the sky and you can see those stars far away, can't you? There are countless celestial bodies at incomprehensible distances. I don't know how far it is, light years, whatever that means. And of course, space is limited, we know that, but it's not possible for any of us to measure it. 
So that which seems to be immeasurable is analogous to God's unwavering love. It's so great. It's so deep. It's so broad and wide. He says it's like the seemingly unlimited expanse of space. Can you imagine being loved like that? It's almost unbelievable. But it's true. And yet how easily we are led to think that God is like us. Petty, selfish, stingy, vindictive. This is how the devil tempted Eve. He tempts us with the same old lie with which he tempted Eve. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? As if to say, is he really that stingy that he wouldn't, that he'd deny you access to the fruit? Is he really that stingy? Eve says, but he told us not to eat of just one of the trees, otherwise we'd die. Devil says, you're not going to die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. He's jealous. Not only stingy. And our Lord warned us that Satan is a liar and the father of lies, and he wants you and I to believe that our good God is as stingy and vindictive as we are. That's the farthest thing from the truth. He gave his only son to redeem sinners like you and me. And he's willing to bless us and to bestow upon us the very riches of heaven. That's not stingy. And our misconceptions of God's character stem from our own sin and the devil's temptation. We are oh so prone to framing our thoughts according to feeling and not fact. We endure a little hardship. We experience a little discouragement and we think he hates us. That's feeling. This is fact. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And he uses all these words to show us just how good and gracious he is. He's a loving father, not in any way harsh or mean or callous or unkind. And we see his fresh mercies every morning, don't we? the Thanksgiving prayer that Pastor Pilon gave. We enjoy his fatherly care every night. And of course, as I said, the greatest demonstration of his love was at the cross of Jesus. That's where the incarnate son endured the unspeakable torments in our place. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He was stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. And so if you or I ever doubt the divine love, then I think we should simply fix our eyes on the crucified Jesus. It is he who for the joy set before him endured that cross, despising the shame to save the likes of you and me. And Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Well, 
We see Jesus, sympathetic, kind, compassionate. So is our Heavenly Father. And what we see in Jesus is what we have in God, because the two are one. And so all we can say, thanks be to God for the inexpressible gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the written word of God, which tells us the fact of your love and compassion. We realize so often that we rely upon feeling and we're almost led astray, but we're grateful for the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit, who by his word enables us to be reoriented like Jonah and to know that you are a God who loves us. We pray now for the Spirit's help as we seek to praise your name. For we do ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.